culture to politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, a portrait of George Washington. Washington's birthday celebrated on February 22nd, even though Washington was actually born on February 11th. But because the calendar shifted while he was alive, while he was a young man, he always observed his birthday on the 22nd of February. What we're listening to in the background is a march written for George Washington in 1793, the beginning of his second term. It's a march written by a German immigrant named Philip File. And you know, for a hundred years, this was our unofficial national anthem until Woodrow Wilson, another Virginian, substituted the Star-Spangled Banner officially in 1914. In any event, this, the President's March by Philip File, written to greet Washington at his uh, second inaugural. Washington, one of the most remarkable lives in all human history. You may think you know something about him. You may think you know Washington as sort of a cold, statue-like, marble, pure figure. He wasn't like that. Do you know that one of his neighbors referred to him as the stallion of the Potomac? Now, that may make you think he has more in common with Bill Clinton than is actually true. But uh, Washington, as a young man, was tremendously passionate, was always in love with one beautiful woman or another, proposed to two women who turned him down, turned him down because he didn't come from such a great family background. Washington's family background is something that's often misunderstood. People think George Washington, he had it made. He was born as an aristocrat. He was born into a rich family, prominent family. But it was a highly questionable family in Virginia society. His ancestor, the first Washington to come to America, came in 1675. His name was John Washington. He was a, um, well, he was a fairly controversial guy. He was implicated in the murder of five Indians who had come under flag of truce. He was a rather fierce gentleman, was John Washington, the president's ancestor. And also, after the wife, who was George's ancestress, died, he married in succession two sisters who had both been accused before him when he sat as a justice of the peace, one with keeping a <clears throat> body house and the other with being the... Um, um, there's no polite way of saying it, the mistress of the of the governor. Uh, by the time that Washington's father came on the scene, Augustine Washington, the family had gotten a bit more respectable, a bit more accepted, but it was not a leading Virginia family in any way. And Washington himself had the tremendous misfortune of having been born to the second wife of Augustine Washington. Why was that such a big misfortune? Well, because it meant that whatever money his father left when his father died, when George was 11, went to his two older half-brothers. George, who was the oldest of the five kids from the second family, was always treated as something of a poor relation. And then there was the problem of his mother. His mother, Mary Ball Washington, maybe would go down in history with Sophie Portnoy, the fictional mother of in Portnoy's complaint by Philip Roth, as one of the truly, truly impossible mothers in the history of this country. She was 25 by the time she married Washington's father. And the reason that she was an old maid, and 25 was an old maid at that time, 
before she got married for the first time is because this lady was impossible. Just how impossible was she? How difficult did she make the life of her son and everyone around her? It's part of the story of the formation of the most remarkable character, the most remarkable self-control and dignity in all of American history. It's Washington's birthday, day after, actually. We're covering, for a little while here, President George Washington. We will be right back with his story and some details I'm pretty sure you don't know about the father of our country. We'll be right back on The Michael Medved Show. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, A Portrait of George Washington. For more history shows, check out medvedhistorystore.com. Michael Medved, back with you in the background. The President's March from 1793, written to honor the President of the United States, George Washington. Written by Philip File, it served as our unofficial national anthem for some 100 years. We uh, we were just talking about Washington's family background. His, his father, Augustine, died when he was 11, which meant that poor George was left to his mother, Mary Ball Washington. She had five children. George was the oldest. He got most of her attention. You can get almost some sense of just how impossible this woman was when you visit her home in Fredericksburg, Virginia, a home that George built for her. He never could do enough for his mom. Does that sound like any other mothers you might know? It's incredible to read her letters. It is the most heartbreaking thing. George Washington is away. He's general-in-chief of the Continental Army. He's fighting the British in an impossible struggle. And his mother nags him, you haven't called on me recently. You haven't written me. What are you doing? She didn't want him to be general-in-chief. She thought he was doing the wrong thing because fighting the British and creating a new nation was taking attention away from her. When George was 16, he wanted to run away to sea. He wanted to become a ship captain in the British Navy. He was in an impossible situation with his mother, with four younger siblings, and his half-brother, who became sort of a surrogate father, his half-brother Lawrence, who was 14 years older than George, encouraged him, thought he would make a great naval man in the British Navy. He had packed up his belongings. He had his trunks ready to go. The carriage was ready to take him to the coast where he was going to um, sail away, ultimately to London, to join the British Navy. His mother came into his bedroom and basically threw a fit and said she would die if he left the home. He couldn't do this to her. He had to be there. He couldn't leave. He never joined the British Navy. How different would world history have been if Mary Ball Washington had been somewhat different? The relationship with her oldest son was all, always, always stormy. Before he went away in the Revolution to take command of the colonial armies, the Continental Armies, he had set her up in that home in Fredericksburg, and he saw to it that she was well supplied with money and goods, but she nonetheless complained, as he put it in one of his letters, upon all occasions and in all companies, that she was neglected and left in great want. She even went to the Virginia legislature and initiated a movement in the legislature whereby the state would come to her financial rescue while her son was off as commander-in-chief. Washington found her action the greatest humiliation of his entire life and squashed it. 
After the war, her demands for money became so oppressive and annoying that Washington wrote back to her and suggested, why don't you sell your house and go live with one of your children? But he didn't want her to come to Mount Vernon and live with him. She had such a testy relationship with her son. She was alive and well when he was inaugurated as the first president of the United States. She refused to come because she didn't approve of him being president. Anybody think you have problems with your mom? The father of our country set the tone on that one. You know what's fascinating is when he was 15, he wrote out in his own handwriting 110 rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. And these are rules that, frankly, I would like my son to copy over at some point. What's interesting is the origins go back to 1680, and they used to be known as Hawkins Rules of Civility. The original Hawkins Rules had 170. This is 110. These are the rules that George Washington copied in his own handwriting at age 15. Michael Medved, I love you, man. You're my favorite, favorite analyst. I listen to you all the time. Michael Medved. It's not just at the college level. Students of all ages are being taught a skewed and false narrative about American history. That's why there's no better time to check out medvedhistorystore.com. There are so many programs available to share with your kids. Shows on the U.S. Constitution, our greatest and worst presidents, World War II, the Vietnam War, the American Revolution, profiles of great presidents like George Washington, Theodore Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, and so many more. Check out medvedhistorystore.com. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, A Portrait of George Washington. These are the rules that George Washington copied in his own handwriting at age 15. Associate yourself with persons of good character. It is better to be alone than in bad company. Think before you speak. Accept corrections, thankfully. Be not obstinate in supporting your own opinion. Treat sublime matters seriously. Do not repeat news if you know not the truth thereof. Speak not evil of the absent. When you speak of God or his attributes, let it be seriously and with reverence. Honor and obey your natural parents, even though they be poor. Let your recreations be manful, not sinful. Labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. When your superiors are talking, do not speak or laugh. When your elders are talking, speak not until you are asked a question, then stand up and answer in a few words. And this goes on to things like kill no vermin as flies, lice, ticks, etc. in the sight of others. You know, in the 1750s, that was a big thing to be careful of. Well, I'll tell you a good source if you want a source on these. It's a book which was actually sent to me by a listener, and I thank the listener for that. It's called The Making of George Washington. The author is William H. Wilbur. It's published by Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge. They have almost all of the rules of civility and the origins. What can you say about this? What you can say is that this kind of moral education helped to take a raw-boned, huge young man, and he was a giant in his era, and a very passionate young man, and to make of him one of the greatest human beings who ever walked around on this planet. When I come back, I want to talk just a little bit about the physicality of George Washington. There's some argument how tall he was. When he died, his private secretary measured him, Six feet, three and a half inches, which would be about the equivalent of seven feet today. 
a very, very tall man and a remarkable physical specimen in every way. We'll be back with that and the impact Washington had on people around him just as a physical presence when we return on The Michael Medved Show. Best show on the radio. This is The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved back with you. Um, just uh, talking a little bit today about George Washington. As you know, I'm skeptical about President's Day. I think that Washington's birthday is important. It was yesterday. Lincoln's birthday is important. We did some material on Lincoln a couple of weeks ago uh, when it was his birthday. Part of, of what you need to know about George Washington is, is this whole vision of the stuffy, powdered wig aristocrat. No president has ever been more shaped by the frontier, no, not even Jackson, not even Lincoln, than George Washington. His entire maturity came from adventures on the frontier. He also had less formal education than any American president. Only one of the first six presidents never to go to college. He actually went to schools less than a year. He was tutored, but uh, remember that both Jackson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln studied law as adults. Washington never did. He did seem to have an aptitude for mathematics. If you look at these copy books, which his mother, his doting and impossible mother, Mary Bull Washington, preserved, you can see that he was very advanced with math. And part of what happened with him as he was growing up was when his mother made it impossible for him to run away to sea, which he wanted to do, he became interested in surveying, in surveying in the wilderness, in using some of this mathematical skill to map out untracked land. And he writes about these early adventures, encountering Indians for the first time and being fascinated by them, about a love of the wilderness, of a love of adventure. And in fact, he was starting to work as a surveyor at age 16, right after it became clear that he wasn't going to be allowed to run away to sea. And he was so taken with this wide-open western land that at age 18, he made his very first land purchase. Now, remember, he did not have inherited wealth because he was from his father's second family. But at age 18, saving up money that he earned as a surveyor, he made his first land purchase on Bullskin Creek. It's a tributary of the Shenandoah in the Shenandoah Valley. It was then wilderness. He bought 1,459 acres. And this was a lifelong obsession for him. He... Um, continued acquiring acreage, at one point owned close to 60,000 acres, most of it in the wilderness, because he believed in the future of the wilderness. He was a rugged guy. How big was Washington? Well, there are different points of view. Someone who knew him well in his 20s described him as six feet, two inches tall, in his stockings, and weighing 175 pounds. We do know that he never weighed more than 200 pounds, Though there's debate about his height. His height could have been as high as six feet, four and a half inches. This is interesting. This is one of the most famous men in the world. How do we not know exactly how tall he is? Well, after George Washington died, just shy of his uh, 68th birthday, his faithful private secretary, whose name was Tobias Lear, measured all his measurements, all his dimensions for posterity. This was the most famous man in the world at the time. He measured George Washington very precisely at six feet, three and a half inches. Now, this was when he was 67 years old. Some medical experts say that this indicates that Washington, in his prime, would have been even taller than that. 
making him our tallest president, even taller than Lincoln. Others suggest that perhaps rigor mortis had set in when Lear made his measurements, adding an inch or two to Washington's height. In any event, he was a giant, and people who met him were immediately impressed not only by his size, but particularly by his bearing, which was remarkable. He had huge hands and feet. He always had to have gloves made specially. Normal gloves wouldn't fit on George Washington. He wore size 13 boots. He had cool, steady, blue-gray eyes. In Emerson's phrase, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said his eyes recalled an ox gazing out of a pasture. But a lot of other people saw far more accurately a controlled sort of fury in his eyes. What is fascinating, particularly to me, I'm going to read a description of George Washington. This was done when he was fighting in the French and Indian War. And he was a young officer. And he was basically a, a nobody. He's 26 years old. And yet one of his fellow officers wrote this down about him. This was how important he thought George Washington was, that he wrote down this detail. Straight as an Indian, measuring 6 feet 2 inches in his stockings and weighing 175 pounds. His frame is padded with well-developed muscles, indicating great strength. His bones and joints are large, as are his hands and feet. He is wide-shouldered, but has not a deep or round chest, is neat-wested, but is broad across the hips and has rather long legs and arms. His head is well-shaped, though not large, but is gracefully poised on a superb neck. A large and straight, rather than a prominent nose, blue-gray eyes penetrating, which are widely separated and overhung by a heavy brow. His face is long rather than broad, with high, round cheekbones, and terminates in a good, firm chin. He has a clear, though rather colorless, pale skin, which burns with the sun. A pleasant and benevolent, though a commanding countenance, dark brown hair, which he wears in a queue. His mouth is large and generally firmly closed, but which from time to time discloses some defective teeth. His features are regular and placid, with all the muscles of his face under perfect control, though flexible and expressive of deep feeling when moved by emotions. In conversation, he looks you full in the face as deliberate, deferential, and engaging. His demeanor is at all times composed and dignified. His movements and gestures are graceful, his walk majestic, and he is a splendid horseman. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, a portrait of... You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, a portrait of George Washington. His features are regular and placid, with all the muscles of his face under perfect control, though flexible and expressive of deep feeling when moved by emotions. In conversation, he looks you full in the face as deliberate, deferential, and engaging. His demeanor is at all times composed and dignified. His movements and gestures are graceful, his walk majestic, and he is a splendid horseman. The guy was 26 years old. What was it about him that so impressed one of his fellow officers that he'd write down all this detail about a 26-year-old who, frankly, wasn't even that important yet? We're talking a little bit about the way that George Washington just absolutely overwhelmed people when they met him. They were instantly struck by him. They were instantly impressed by him. This was from the time he was a teenager. What impressed them was not only his physical stature and his agility. He was a fine horseman. He was a great, fun-loving, athletic, enthusiastic kid. But was also his self-control and his self-possession. 
And there was also a sense, beginning when he was 21, that he had been marked out for some kind of a special destiny. You see, after his brother Lawrence, half-brother Lawrence, died, Washington took over his role with the militia in Virginia, and this led to his entrance onto the world stage and to his crucial role in the early days of the French and Indian War. And he was one of the militia officers who went with General Braddock back in July of 1755 in what was still recorded as the worst defeat for British arms in history, Braddock's defeat, the Battle of Monongahela near Pittsburgh, where the British marched into a trap set by the French and their Indian allies. Why is this noteworthy? Well, Washington at the time was all of 23 years old. He was a young man. He was a colonel in the Virginia militia. He was the only officer of all the British officers who was neither killed nor wounded. And he alone was responsible for getting out about a third of the British troops, helping them to survive and to escape. His commander, General Edward Braddock, was killed. The amazing thing is his uniform had four bullet holes in it. Washington was unscathed. His horse was shot out from under him. He fell. He was feverish at the time. He was suffering from some kind of a flu or a fever. He fell after his horse was shot, got on another horse. The second horse was shot. Washington continued in the battle. When he returned, he wrote to his brother Jack. Washington wrote, Death was leveling my companions on every side of me, but by the all-powerful dispensations of providence I have been protected. Now, there was a famous clergyman in Virginia named Samuel Davies. He wrote at the time, again, Washington's 23 years old, to the public, I point out that heroic youth, whom I cannot but hope providence has preserved in so signal a manner for some important service to his country. Amazing stuff. Fifteen years later, before the Revolution, before Lexington and Concord, before he was a famous general, when he was just a planter at Mount Vernon, he went with his lifelong friend, Dr. Craig. He was the same doctor who attended Washington in his final illness in 1799. He went riding back to the scene of this battle just to look at it. Again, we're talking about 1770, so Washington was, well, he's born in 1732. He's in his late 30s. He was riding with his friend, Dr. Craig, back near where the battle had occurred that he had survived so miraculously. They came upon a band of Indians who came to them with an interpreter. And the leader of the band was an old, venerable chief who specifically wanted to speak to Washington. He didn't want to speak to Dr. Craig. He pointed to George Washington. He said, I want to speak to you. They kindled a council fire and sat around the council fire. And the words the chief spoke to the then 38-year-old George Washington are worth repeating. I'll give you those words when we come back from this break on The Michael Medved Show.
This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A new study of the aging process demolishes one of the chief leftist claims about health care, that government control can eliminate inequality. The research, conducted by Harvard and University College London, looked at more than 25,000 people over 50 in the U.S. and the U.K. In both countries, subjects with higher net worth enjoyed an identical advantage of eight to nine disability-free years compared to those with little or no personal wealth. The results shocked experts who expected that Britain's highly touted government-funded National Health Service would produce more equal outcomes than the United States. Data strongly suggests the real difference in health and longevity reflect common patterns in both countries, where the poor are far more likely to smoke, to consume unhealthy diets, to abuse drugs and alcohol, and shun regular exercise. In both America and Britain, health depends less on government programs than on lifestyle choices we can control. I'm Michael Medved. We are in the dense wilderness on the Michael Medved Show, near current-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, once was dense wilderness. Still some pretty good woods out there, by the way. But uh, George Washington, in 1770, five years before he's appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army for the Revolution, is riding with his friend, and an Indian chief at sunset asks to speak to him. And they sit around a council fire, and Dr. Craig, Washington's friend, wrote down the words that the chief spoke through an interpreter. This is what he said. I am a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief. Remarkably, this Native American sachem had made a point of finding Washington, who he had seen on the battlefield 15 years before. The Indian went on. I called to my young men and said, Mark, yon tall and daring warrior, he is not of the Redcoat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom, and his warriors fight as we do. Himself alone is exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for him, knew not how to miss. Twas all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. I am old, and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But ere I go, there is something that bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen, the great spirit protects that man and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. And so we do hail him. Uh, one of the things that is peculiar about George Washington is uh, it's kind of difficult when you look at the portraits of Washington that Gilbert Stuart did, the famous one on the dollar bill. He doesn't look that impressive. And yet everybody who met him was usually impressed by him. You know what that's about? Gilbert Stuart, the painter, who was a drunk, came to Philadelphia in 1795 and wanted to paint the president to make a buck. He never got along. The painter was in the habit of keeping his sitters amused and their faces alive by a flood of showing outrageous talk. Washington, who always felt uneasy at remaining still and being stared at, was put out rather than amused. And Stuart, who believed that artists were fundamentally superior to all other human beings, including presidents, resented Washington's formality. He could not forget what resulted when, in trying to unstiffen the hero, he had gone to the length of saying, Now, sir, you must let me forget that you are General Washington and I am Stuart the painter. 
And Washington replied, as it seemed to him politely, Mr. Stewart need never feel the need for forgetting who he is and who General Washington is. So Stewart emphasized, as no other portraitist did, the distortions of Washington's mouth with his false teeth, which were made of hippopotamus ivory. And none of the other artists who painted Washington had Stewart's vast skill in creating a convincing likeness, but Stewart distorted his mouth. And in fact, people talked about Washington's false teeth, created hollow cheeks, strong cheekbones. Stewart stuffed cotton into his mouth. And you can see that. Look at the portrait on the dollar bill. Stewart, with his rage against Washington, he always disliked the man, had the ultimate revenge on what he considered to be poor treatment by portraying Washington to posterity with that very uncomfortable and unhappy look in his face. For more history shows, check out medvedhistorystore.com. You're listening to a special broadcast of The Michael Medved Show, A Portrait of George Washington. We go to Bob in Seattle. Bob, you're on The Michael Medved Show. Yes, uh, thank you, Michael. It sounds to me like you've been reading from Bill Bennett's book, Our Sacred Honor. Have you? Uh, to some extent, yep. Just want to recommend that to, to anybody who's listening in. It's by Simon & Schuster, and it's the writings of our early, early founders. Yes, and you can find in there a fairly complete selection from uh, General uh, Washington's Rules of Civility. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that he wrote down when he was 15 years old. Yes, it's a very, it's a very uh, remarkable book with great comments by Bill Bennett. You bet. Okay, Mike, my, my comment is a strong leader will pick very strong people. A weak leader does not want people around him who will dominate him. It's very interesting that Washington picked Hamilton and Jefferson, two of the most intellectual, strongest people in our history, to be his cabinet, and he picked the very best people he could get. He did, absolutely, and... And he desperately kept them both on the cabinet, though they both wanted to resign early on. Washington always viewed it as the biggest disaster of his presidency when Jefferson finally insisted on leaving as Secretary of State. Yes. And the, the other two members of the cabinet were also outstanding. We used to have only four cabinet members. Uh, right. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was Secretary of State. Alexander Hamilton, who's on the $10 bill, was Secretary right. of the Treasury. And then you had Henry Knox was Secretary of War. And Washington's closest friend in the cabinet was Edmund Randolph, yeah. who was attorney general. Now, when Jefferson left, Edmund Randolph became secretary of state. And that's important because a heartbreaking moment in Washington's second term was when he realized that Edmund Randolph, his friend, who he had appointed secretary of state, who had been the first attorney general, was taking bribes. Oh, okay. From the French. I do have one, one further comment. I think, I think Hamilton is probably our greatest secretary of the treasury. I don't think that Jeff Jefferson was our greatest secretary of state. I think that belongs to John Quincy Adams. I, many, many historians will agree with you. Uh, John Quincy Adams was a great Secretary of State for two terms for James Monroe. Yes. But he was a disappointing president. That's correct. Thanks very much for your call, Bob. I appreciate it. But I was just calling about the music. I'm thoroughly enamored with, with your music. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? The, the, the revolutionary music, let me give you the names of a couple of albums okay. that you can get. There's a fantastic re-release of an album that was recorded in 1956. It's just been re-released on Mercury Living Presence label. It's called The Spirit of 76 and Ruffles and Flourishes. It's by Frederick Fennell is the name of the conductor. F-E-N-N-E-L-L. -L. Again, it's The Spirit of 76 on Mercury. 
the William Billings. Uh, now, I'm a big, I love William Billings. I have like six different CDs of William Billings. But the best one, the one we're using today, is called William Billings, the Continental Harmonist with the Greg Smith Singers. It's a premiere recording. Both of these discs you should be able to get, well, when they're on sale for about 10 bucks. Okay. On, on compact disc. Good. Hey, thanks, Jim. Appreciate your call. Thank you. What are you? What you're listening to right now is one of countless songs and tributes written in the 1790s and uh, to to President Washington. This is uh, one of the first art songs, uh, so-called art songs, written in the United States by Francis Hopkinson. It's called "A Toast to George Washington." He is our glory and guide. Say that the words. Francis Hopkinson was a uh, rather remarkable man. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence himself and uh, America's first Secretary of the Navy, also America's first notable composer. Okay, well, I was talking a little bit about Washington in um, his social schedule, which was intense when he was president. He felt that part of what he needed to do was to unify the country. After all, no one knew of this Constitution that he had helped to draft. He was president of the Constitutional Convention. If the Constitution would take, he became president. There were th still three states that had not ratified the Constitution, New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. Washington was very concerned about setting the right tone. So three times a week, he had social affairs. Every week, for men only, every Tuesday, there would be a levy from three to four. He would stand there with his sword. He would nod to people. As president, he didn't feel it was appropriate to shake hands. He felt it was appropriate to bow. Then there were Martha's tea parties, which he would also attend. They were for men and women. They were held on Friday evenings. And then every Thursday was an official dinner at four in the afternoon. These uh, men-only affairs, they were open to anyone who was properly dressed, could come in and talk to the president. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? At one of Martha's tea parties, Abigail Adams used to sit next to Martha Washington. She came late one time. She noticed that General Washington, the president, came across the room, and someone else was sitting next to Martha, and he very politely got her to move to make room for Abigail. And here's what Mrs. Adams wrote. This same president has so happy a faculty of appearing to accommodate and yet carrying his point that if he was not really one of the best-intentioned men in the world, he might be a very dangerous one. He is polite with dignity, affable without familiarity, distant without haughtiness, grave without austerity, modest, wise, and good. Now, this was a man against whom her husband felt great jealousy. One of the things about George Washington, think about it for a moment how remarkable it would be to, to sit there trying to make sense out of this Constitution. For instance, Washington believed that the veto power should only be used not when you felt that a bill was a bad idea, but when you felt it was unconstitutional. He thought that was why they had put a presidential veto into the Constitution. 
Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's the Supreme Court's job. Well, it wasn't. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court is supposed to find out whether a piece of legislation is constitutional or not. It doesn't exist. You can go over your Constitution, look over it as carefully as you can. There's nothing there that says the Supreme Court determines what's constitutional or not. What happened was in 1803, Chief Justice Marshall, another friend and colleague of Washington's, discovered or invented that right of judicial review. Before Marshall did that, Washington believed it was a president's job to look at legislation and see whether it were constitutional or not. Do you know how many times he vetoed legislation in his eight years as president? Twice. The first bill he vetoed was a bill to increase the number of members of Congress. Washington was a bug on tight-fisted government. He understood that what had motivated his brave men in the Revolution was paying too much taxes. And he was absolutely determined to keep American expenditures for the federal government very, very low. He also felt that by creating new members of Congress, they were not only wasting money, but expanding the Congress beyond what the Constitution intended. So he vetoed that bill, was overridden in the House of Representatives, but the Senate sustained his veto. The second veto, when the Congress was trying for irresponsible defense cuts. They were trying to eliminate the U.S. cavalry. Washington felt, well, the Army was important. And again, he was sustained by only one vote on that veto. He was almost overridden. Speaking of the Army, one of the things that he did that was controversial while he was president, he's the only president who became an active general in the field. Who was he fighting? He was fighting the Whiskey Boys. In western Pennsylvania, there was a rebellion where a group of frontier farmers were very much protesting the tax on booze. Because one of the problems they had was they couldn't get their grain to market easily. So what they did is they distilled the grain into whiskey bottles and sold the whiskey. It made sense. And all of a sudden, the federal government from far away, then in Philadelphia, is putting a tax on your whiskey? These were fighting words in western Pennsylvania. The whiskey boys defeated a regiment of the regular army that had been sent out to restore order. They captured custom houses. They killed a few people. The frontier was aflame, and they were trying to, oh, to even talking about creating a new nation and seceding a new nation of the trans-Allegheny West. Washington was sympathetic to their plight and felt that it was appropriate to try to negotiate some kind of a reduction in the whiskey tax, but you first had to maintain order. He recruited and led in uniform as general-in-chief, the first president, the only one to actually work on the field of battle as commander-in-chief, an army of 15,000 volunteers to smash the Whiskey Rebellion. When the Whiskey Boys saw an army of this size marching in, it actually marched at the head of Alexander Hamilton. He, he was Washington's second-in-command. They said, never mind. And meanwhile, Washington, showing the kind of person that he was, with two of the whiskey boys sentenced to death, he commuted their sentences. He showed great magnanimity in dealing with them. And as he had done in that previous episode that I told you about, turned potential enemies into friends. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Michael Med